All righty, moving right along this morning. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So um, today marks one of the, my favorite uh, days on the church calendar. Um, if I hadn't told you at the beginning that this is Transfiguration Sunday, just hearing those words, the scripture that we were reading this morning would tell you that. Um, and I've told you in previous years because um, there are many days like this on the church calendar, but this one is different. So we stop everything and we kind of move up to this and move from this day. We talk about Transfiguration Sunday pretty much every year, every year that I've been here anyway. And I've told you in past years that it's one of my favorite days for Sunday school because it's fun to try to teach the preschoolers how to say Transfiguration. You can see how that would go, right? So, all right, where are we? This is the last um, Sunday of a season we call Epiphany. And it's uh, the bridge between Epiphany, and I'm going to talk about that in a, in a little bit. Um, it's the bridge between Epiphany and Lent. Like I said, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, so we're going to go into the Lenten season. Um, and then, of course, we're going to celebrate the Easter season after that. Remember, Easter isn't just one day. Easter is a season. Now, this morning, I want to jump right into it. I want to look at this transfiguration in three different ways, three different angles. Um, and all of those uh, ways should be um, getting back to that historical moment and, and uh, how it's changing our lives, how it should change our relationship with God, should change how we worship God, should change how we praise God, should literally change how we see Him. Now, in order to do this the right way, I want to just kind of set the stage a little bit. I like to set context for what we're reading in the Bible because sometimes we just read some verses and, and we think that that's just a little snapshot. Well, we've got to get what's came, come into it, coming into it and maybe what's, what's going out of it too. Um, this um, historical account um, occurs in three of the four Gospels and we're going to look at a snippet of each one of them. If we th- talk about Matthew for a second, it's in Matthew 17. Okay, so now um, that's deep into Matthew. Uh, Matthew 18, 19 to 20, um, there's a lot of red letters in there of, of Jesus speaking, right? So Jesus is teaching through those. Um, parenthetically, almost in those uh, chapters, it says that Jesus went from one town to another. But here's the thing, not a lot of time went by between chapter 17 and chapter 21. Chapter 21 of Matthew is when Jesus is riding the donkey into Jerusalem. The point I'm making here is that we're at the end of his ministry, um, his disciples have been walking around with him for three years, more or less, give or take. They've been watching the miracles that he's been performing. They've been listening to the teaching. They've been watching his presence. They know who he is and they know what's going on. So much so that we, now let's uh, set up chapter 17 by looking back at chapter 16. Um, because that's where uh, one of the key moments in scripture happens. And again, we look at scripture sometimes and we think that's for somebody else or that's about somebody else. We've got to start owning it. We've got to start living into it. We've got to start taking that scripture for our own. Because Jesus asks some important questions right here in Matthew 16. And if we don't ask ourselves those questions, we're cheating our relationship with God. I'm going to turn that around to more of a positive. When we start asking these questions, we strengthen our relationship with God. So take a peek at Matthew 16. We'll start in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Literally, he said, Who do people say I am? Verse 14, Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, which I don't understand completely, but some say Elijah, which makes a whole lot of sense. We'll talk about that in the series um, down the road a little bit. Others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Was That's what their answer was. And then Jesus asks the question of all questions in Scripture. He says, who do you say I am? Peter doesn't flinch. He says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God in verse 16. 
You're the, you're the Christ. You're the chosen one. You're the anointed one. You're the one that we've been waiting for all this time. Peter's been walking around with him for three years. He knows what's up. He's seen it. There's no doubt in his mind. He is 100% in. Verse 20, Jesus says, Then he sternly warned the disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Okay, you get it, he said. But here's the thing. We can't reveal it yet. We've got to just chill for a little bit longer, and then it's going to come apart. Or it's going to come to the part. And, but here's the part that continually confused the disciples. Verse 21. Now, this is right after they said, You are the Messiah. You are the living one, the anointed one, the chosen one, the one, the Son of God, Son of the living God. He said, cool, don't tell anybody. And then he tells them this. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. He would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. That's the Sadducees, the scribes, and the the Pharisees. That's all three of them. He would be killed, he said. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now, that's a long verse, I understand. But I want you to look at the, the top part again. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly. He wasn't speaking in parables. He wasn't speaking in analogies. He said, I am going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to turn myself over. They're going to kill me. They're going to hang me on a cross. And the disciples freaked out at that. They kind of missed that whole thing at the bottom there, but he would be raised from the dead in three days. They kind of missed that part. That's not what the Messiah was supposed to do, right? Jesus is like, it's not like I can't mention this. I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to die. But three days later... The disciples started to doubt. The disciples started to waver. So with that as a backdrop, Jesus brings Peter, James, and John, the leaders of the disciples, those three, he brings them up on top of the mountain with him. Right? And at least for a moment, they were by themselves. Matthew 17, uh, maybe verse 2. Uh, then he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Jesus was transfigured before them. I'm going to get to that word here in just a couple of minutes. But first I want to talk about what that looks like. What does that look like? Well, his face shone like the sun, his garments became uh, as white as light. Mark says that nobody can wash clothes that white. Luke said it was like trying to look at lightning. Like trying to look at a lightning bolt that was standing there in front of us. We couldn't see, we couldn't look right at it. So the way this reads, no sooner did they get up there, but Jesus turned so bright and so white that they could hardly look in his direction. And while they're looking in his direction, two other figures appear. Let's look at Mark. We'll jump around with a couple of different Gospels. Mark 9, verse 4. It says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Okay, cool. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Now, sometimes when I'm reading through Scripture like this, um, like I've, I say it all the time, we can't just let these words just sit there on the page and just kind of, you know, dully and, and boringly read through them. When I read stuff like this, I say, okay, Moses and Elijah are standing there. Cool. And I think, well, why, why isn't somebody else standing there? Maybe uh, also or instead of? Because there's some pretty strong characters in the, in the Old Testament that could be standing there uh, with Jesus. Take Adam, for example. First human, God created Adam, right? He spoke everything else into existence. Adam, when it came time to forming humans, he formed him from the dust with his hands. And then he breathed the breath of life that still flows through us. He breathed the breath of life into Adam. If I'm Adam, I could make a pretty strong resume that said, I want to be standing on that mountain of transfiguration. But he's not. 
Then fast forward a couple of chapters in Genesis, you get to a guy named Abraham. We had a series on him. right? Righteous in God's sight. God called Abraham his friend. Right? He's the father of the Hebrew nation. We call him Father Abraham. Father Abraham would have a very strong resume to say, I want to be standing on the Mount of Transfiguration, but he's not there either. Fast forward a couple of generations from Abraham, you got a guy by the name of Jacob. Or his name used to be Jacob. God literally changed Jacob's name to Israel. He said, your name is now going to be Israel. Jacob's 12 sons represent the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob has a strong case to be standing there on the Mount of Transfiguration. So does one of his sons, Joseph. Right? His brothers hated him, threw him down in a well, right? sold him into slavery, he got into Egypt, and then basically, long story short, saved the known world, made Egypt this incredible superpower. But Joseph isn't standing there either. We have, we have Elijah, and we have, we have Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, representing the law. Right? Sometimes we call it the law of Moses, those first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes we call it, it's not Moses' law, but it's a law that God told Moses, write this down and keep it straight, and let's teach everybody about this. Moses represented the law. Elijah represented the prophets. Right? And he did a lot of the same things that Jesus did. People got confused a little bit and said, is this Elijah coming back? Is Jesus actually Elijah? Because we see some of the things in the Old Testament that Jesus is doing now. He's doing a lot more, but some similarities here. Elijah representing the prophets, 17 of them. Five we call major prophets, including Lamentations, of course. And then 12 of what we call the minor prophets. Not in order of importance, but in order of how long their, their books are. Those 12 minor prophets are kind of snippets of what's going on. The other uh, prophets at the beginning, the major prophets, are much longer books, like Isaiah, for example. Now, it's no coincidence that the law and the prophets are standing here. And no coincidence that Jesus, time and time and time again, mentions the law and the prophets. One of my favorites, I don't have it up here for you this morning, but 5.17, Matthew 5.17, that's where Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Not to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. Well, here we are standing on the mount with the law and the prophets. Both Moses and Elijah, by the way, had some very unusual exits from the world. Moses brought the Israelites up to the, uh, the brink of the promised land, and then God said, okay, that's cool, thank you very much, but now we're going we're gonna to get some new blood in here, we're going to bring Joshua in, and I'm going to bring you home with me. And that's what he did. And then Jude 9 says some crazy thing about um, Satan and the archangel Gabriel fighting over Moses' body and then God burying him so that nobody would find him and there wouldn't be any trouble anymore. But Elijah, Elijah's crazy. He's one of the only two of the people, one of two people in the Bible that didn't actually die. God just actually brought him to heaven. Elijah's there with his, his disciple Elisha. There's this chariot of fire and these horses of fire kind of separating the two so that Elisha can't get by Elijah. And God just takes him to heaven with him in a whirlwind. And I was watching yet another uh, series. Uh, have you ever watched Harry Potter? I mean, it's on every weekend. It's like every weekend is a Harry Potter marathon. And I saw this scene and I couldn't help but think, maybe I wonder if this is what that looked like. So watch Dumbledore here and see what happens and see if you think this might have been what, uh, what Elijah looked like. He makes a great exit here. Take him! (sighs) You may not like him, Minister. 
But you can't deny Dumbledore's got style. Dumbledore's got style. Elijah's got style. All right, so as I said before um, this morning, we are at the, in the last, we're in the last Sunday of Epiphany. Um, Transfiguration Sunday is the last Sunday of Epiphany. Um, and like I said, Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. I also mentioned that the church um, celebrates different seasons, right? And I'm going to make an argument this morning for you that, that Epiphany that we're just coming out of is the most important season in the church calendar. Now, the argument usually is between um, Christmas and Easter, you know, which is the most important. And I'm, don't get me wrong, I'm not diminishing anything that happens at Christmas or at Easter. I'm not diminishing anything at all. God has done some amazing things for us because of those or in, in light of those. But we're observers to Christmas and Easter. We're observers to what God does. Almost like we're observers watching a professional football game. We're watching the Packers. We get some joy and we get some entertainment out of it and we get a lot out of it, but we're not on the field playing the game and doing the thing, right? Epiphany, though, is you on the field playing the game and doing the thing. Epiphany is meant to, uh, to strengthen our, our lives and our, our relationship with Christ. Epiphany, we're just coming out of it. That's why we started Epiphany with the series called First Things First, so we can get our priorities straight. We can get the things in order of how we're supposed to rely on God and how we're supposed to put Him first in our lives. Epiphany is about who we are in Christ, who we become in Christ when we open our hearts and we open our minds to Him and we allow Him to do that. But let's go back to the mountaintop for just a moment. So, um, you know, I took a class... Um, when I was doing my undergrad, I took a class uh, called Theater Appreciation. And we would read through these plays. Sometimes it was Shakespeare. Sometimes it was you know, more contemporary people, um, Langston Hughes and people like that. Um, but my, my professor would always ask us, after we'd read through this play, he'd ask this question. He'd say, whose play is this? I didn't understand it at first, but he's li- literally like, who is the main character? And the main character isn't always the one that has the most lines or the ones that's in the most scenes. Um, have you seen that new, and maybe it's not new anymore, but it's the new Mary Poppins. Um, Tom Hanks plays Walt Disney, and, and they're making, it's the, literally the making of the movie Mary Poppins. The author of the story, Mary Poppins, is there with him. She's very particular about how things are going to go. And she got through to him the point this, and this is the point I want you to hear. She said, Mary Poppins isn't about Mary Poppins. It's about George Banks. It's about the dad whose, whose relationship with his kids gets changed. So we wouldn't look at it, uh, you know, if we were just casually observing it, we wouldn't look at it. But my theater teacher said, you've got to dig into things like this and really get the author's intent out of it. So with that idea, I want you to think about who is this, this transfiguration for? You know, whose play is it? We might look at see and say, who's got the most lines or who's, you know, got the, the most, in the most scenes? But that's not always the case. Because God um, steps on the scene, you know, just as we, we've got three characters here already, or three groups. We've got Elijah and Moses, we've got Jesus, we've got the disciples, we've got three already. And then all of a sudden, God shows up. And you think anytime God shows up, it's his show, it's his play, it's his the whole thing. But not so much on this time. Look at Luke. Now, again, we're going to look at a couple different Gospels. Look, Luke 9.35. It says, Then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, I've talked many times before about the difference between hearing something and listening to something. You know, if we drop an anvil over here, we can hear that, but we're not listening to it. He says, you've got to listen. You've got to pay attention. You have to do the things that he's telling you to do. Some of those things that he's saying, just let me into your life. Let me into your heart. 
And that whole scene right there, that whole voice coming from the cloud, seems familiar, yet it's a little bit different. It's kind of like what happened to Jesus' baptism, but God was definitely talking to Jesus at his baptism, reassuring him about what was going on and reassuring him that that you are my chosen one, You, you got this, let's go. But now, look at that. He said, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. We've only got three groups of people up there. Who's God talking to? He's probably not talking to Moses and Elijah. He's definitely not talking to Jesus. The only one that's left is a group of disciples. So who is the transfiguration for? Members of the jury, I submit to you, the transfiguration is about the disciples. Whose play is this? It's the disciples' play. Why are we here in the first place? The timing of it? Because Jesus said, I'm now going to Jerusalem to die, and the disciples freaked out. And they started to waver, and they started to doubt. They started to wonder this whole thing here. Uh, Ten minutes ago, they were 100% in. Now they're not so sure. Now Jesus steps up on the mountain, and the glory of God literally starts coming out from the inside out. Shining so bright that they can't look at him. Oh, and just to be sure here, we got the law and the prophets standing here talking to Jesus with him. Now I showed you at the beginning, Jesus said, who do you say I am? Peter said, you're the son of God, you're the Messiah. You're the chosen one, you're the one we've been waiting for, the anointed one. Well, this is what God says. Well, you know this already, this is my chosen one. Now just listen to him, he's trying to tell you something. Jesus tells them that they're going to go, he's going to go to the cross and suffer and die. And they were like, wait a minute. Peter pulls him aside and says, you've got to stop talking like that. You're going to, you know, kind of ruin morale here. And Jesus said, you better start figuring stuff out. And you better do it pretty quick. So this moment, at that moment in history, Jesus takes him up on the mountain and the disciples have this epiphany. And sometimes, you know, we use that word a little bit differently in the English language than it is in the Greek language. Epiphany to us, you know, we say it kind of almost like a punchline sometimes. And we think of it as a, as a moment. And it certainly is. But it can also be a process. It can also take a moment to get the, to, to, for those things to sink in. The word epiphany means to make known. Jesus took them up that mountain so that there's no doubt about it now. That's the glory of God coming through Jesus. You got Moses and you got Elijah standing there. And then you got God talking to us. Oh, we, got, we, can't get, we can't fail on this one or, 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 or waver on this one. The word epiphany also means to unveil something. And again, it can be a process. So the fact is, the most important event that happened on the mountain, listen to me now, the most important event that happened on the mountain wasn't Jesus turning to the dazzling white, It wasn't Moses and Elijah standing there. It wasn't God talking to them. It was a culmination of all those three things that changed the disciples' heart, changed their way of thinking, strengthened their relationship with God, changed their hearts and their minds. Because they had begun to get confused again. They'd walked with Jesus for three years, watched him perform these miracles. They were, a moment ago, 100% in, 100% convinced. But as soon as Jesus said, I'm going to die, then, you know, wait a second. The whole thing's starting to fall apart here. But God then, through his mercy, brings them up, brought those three disciples, the leader of the disciples, leaders of the disciples, up on that mountaintop to listen to a conversation between God, the Son, God the Son, and Moses and Elijah. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus' glorious 
Exodus. Look at this in Luke 9, 30 and 31. This is powerful stuff. It says, Suddenly two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from the world, which is about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Crazy, right? Exodus. Didn't we hear something like that in the Old Testament? Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt. That was the exodus, right? So again, the word exodus can mean, and does certainly mean, an exit. But if we just stop there, we fall short of what this is telling us here. Because the word exodus means this, means to fulfill one's purpose. The word exodus means to fulfill one's purpose. They were speaking about Jesus fulfilling his purpose by leaving the world, which is about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. His death, his raising, his ascension. I'm a little hesitant to tell you this other part because I don't want you to go too far on this one, but the word exodus also means to close one's career, to close that chapter. Jesus is saying, he told the disciples later on, we'll get to that later on during Lent, but Jesus told his disciples, it's good for you that I'm leaving because the Holy Spirit can come into you now. This chapter is coming to a close, but it's not the end of anything. It's just a continuation. It's just going to look a little bit different, but it's going to be better. But first things first, Jesus was transfigured before them to show them who he is. That word transfigured, I said I was going to come back to that, is a Greek word metamorpheo. It's where we get our word metamorphosis from. You've probably heard that before during Transfiguration Sunday. What you might not have heard, though, is this word only occurs in two places in the Bible. It occurs a few times in this historical account because it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So they all kind of go around that. And then Peter talks about it later, like Angie was reading a second ago. Peter talks about that moment on the holy mountain. So the word metamorphosis, metamorpheo, only occurs one other place in the Bible. And it's about you. And it's for you. Romans 12, 2, the first part of it, says this. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the Greek language has a unique way of dealing with verbs. Um, and you just have to know the, the beginning and the end, and then you understand what the verb is all about. This word conformed, first of all, is something we do to ourselves. So this should literally or could literally say, do not conform yourselves to the patterns of this world. Don't conform yourself to this world. Don't change your hair because the world says you can change your hair. Don't get involved and so swept up and so uh, moved away from God because that's what the world tells you. Don't get so worked up in, in your work. Don't get so worked up in your sports. Don't get so worked up in anything else that takes you away from God because that's what the world is pulling you away to do. That's conforming yourself. And that's something we do on a conscious basis, on a daily basis. Something we do to ourselves. So don't conform yourself to the world. But then it turns around the other way. It says, but be transformed. That's something that's done to you. God transforms us from the inside out when we open our hearts and our minds and our lives to him and accept him into our lives. God opens up and transforms you. Literally changes you from the inside out. So don't conform yourself to the world. Rather, be transformed or allow yourselves to be transformed. Something that God does for you. 
And the way this works, this is uh, not only a new creation, but it's a permanent state of this new creation. Something that you can't go back and do that last thing again because now you're transformed and you're changed into a new creation. One step closer to your glorious exodus. Now, I know I didn't make a big deal out of of the season of Epiphany, but we are coming out of Epiphany. I thought because of that, I would save the the children's sermon uh, for the end of the sermon because you guys say you get more out of that anyway. So I'm going to ask the kids to come up, and I'm going to do a little bit different today. Yeah, come out. The Klitschka's got to come up. Um, Just come up in this, this first pew over here. Don't come all the way up here this morning. Levi, you coming? I have lollipops. Just uh, have a seat right down there in that, in that first pew right there. Make yourselves comfortable. There you go. Come on. He's playing hard to get today. Okay, just grab a seat right on that pew right there. Just go ahead and have a seat without everybody else. There you go. Okay, so this is not only for them. This is for everybody. I'm going to blow your minds this morning. I'm going to show you this magic trick that you are not going to believe. I am going to read your minds. So what do I want you to do is I want you to think of an animal or a creature. It can be an animal, it can be a bird, it can be a fish. Don't say it out loud, obviously. Everybody got one in their head? Because you don't know this yet, but you're all thinking the same thing. And I have it right here. This is what you're thinking. Everybody in this room is right now, their favorite animal is this, a caterpillar. Who's with me? Nobody's, nobody's with me. We're on crowd, maybe. Okay, so we don't put the caterpillar on the top shelf with some of these other majestic animals, right? But the, mechan- or the caterpillar, in fact, is maybe one of the most lowly creatures in the world. Um, a caterpillar, a good day for a caterpillar, two things. Eat as many leaves as possible and try not to be eaten by a bird. That's a successful day for a caterpillar. But then this crazy thing happens to a caterpillar that we don't see anywhere else in nature. It gets put down into a cocoon. I don't have a cocoon today, but I'm going to use this piece of paper instead. So it gets shoved down into this tight spot, this tight little situation. And sometimes our lives can look like that too. We get shoved down into these tight little situations that are are difficult to get through and, and challenging to get through. But, you know, the, uh, the thing is, you know, the caterpillar really doesn't know how this is happening and why it's happening to him. And if we were completely honest, there's things that happen in our lives that we're not completely sure why it's happening to us. We just know that we're in a tight spot. We just know that, you know, it's maybe a little dark in there sometimes and we don't know exactly what's going on. But the thing is, God creates this amazing miracle in caterpillars. You know, the, it stays in that cocoon for a little while. Right? But then he does something that transforms that caterpillar into something amazing. It changes form. It doesn't look like a caterpillar anymore. Instead now, it looks like, it looks like this amazing butterfly. Please hold your applause. There's more. No, I'm kidding. But this is what metamorphosis looks like. And remember what I said, to pop up uh, Romans 12, 2 again, if you would, please. Remember what I said about that change? Be transformed. Allow yourself to be transformed. Because it's then a permanent state. Ever hear of a butterfly turning back into a caterpillar? 
be silly, right? Why would a butterfly turn back into a caterpillar, right? Don't we want to be beautiful and soar around? Well, that's what God has in mind for us. Sometimes our situation can look a little tight, a little dark, a little difficult, a little complicated. But God says, hang with me because I got this. Allow yourself to be transformed. Allow me to change you from the inside out. Allow me to put my glory inside of you. And your life is going to be different. And I guarantee, he says, I guarantee you, you're not going to want to go back to what you were before. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This Transfiguration Sunday, I said, was written for the disciples, but it's written for you. It's written for you so that we can understand the glory of God. It's written for us so that we can understand who He is and how He works in our lives and the power that He has in our lives when we choose Him over everything else. When we don't try to conform ourselves to the world, the patterns of this world, the things of this world, when we allow Him to transform us, when we say yes to Him, He says yes to us. Even though our situations might look tight and dark in different places and in different times of our lives, he says, I've got you and I've got an amazing plan for you. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to hand out some lollipops really quick. And then we're going to continue on with the service. They're all the same. They just have different labels. I'm just kidding. Had a girl. Why don't you bring one for your brother too? Why don't you bring one for your sister? Okay. All right, you guys can go back to your seats.